Coming up, game one of the NBA Finals is tonight as I'll break down all the juicy storylines, key matchups, and predict who will win the Lawrence O'Brien Trophy when it's all said and done. The Conference Finals and the Stanley Cup playoffs are in full effect. And with last night's big victory, can the Rangers dethrone the two-time defending Cup champion Lightning? The Mets may have a big lead in the NL East, but now comes their toughest test to date as they head out west for 11 days in Southern California. Also, Juan Soto is not on the trade market. I'll have a thought about that. Can Coco Goff shock the world and not only make it to her first Grand Slam final, but possibly beat the world's number one player at that? What about Rafael Nadal as he attempts to win his 14th French Open? Please stick around for a midweek pod that has any and everything that you can imagine for the sports fans' delight. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, as June has arrived. And I promise that there won't be any swoon when it comes to delivering all that's happening in the world of sports to you, the listener, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me, going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Quite a bit to get into as we now usher in a new month. Summer is, count them, 18 days away. I know it's been warm here in the Northeast. A little chilly yesterday after it was, what, 95 on a Tuesday. But here we are getting ready to now get into the home stretch of this postseason for both the NHL and NBA, which I'll get into momentarily. We'll also get into all what's happening in baseball, especially with the Mets. And I get it. People are going to say, oh boy, here goes Jay Reels now, puffing out his chest, breaking out the blue and orange pom-poms. But they have easily their biggest stretch coming up, not only on this West Coast trip, but when they come home, they play the first place, and I'm sure they will be at that time, Milwaukee Brewers. So a lot to get into there with the Mets, as well as Juan Soto, As the GM of the Nationals, Mike Rizzo has come out and said we are not trading him. And even though with the rumor out there that Soto and his camp, of course, Scott Boris, 
declining that $350 million offer, does that mean the Nationals are going to pony up $400, $450, maybe even $500 million? I'll touch on that later on. The tennis, which is now getting into its final few days, whether it's Rafael Nadal with that epic quarterfinal match against Novak Djokovic and what his trajectory and pretty much what he has mapped out here over the course leading into the weekend of him getting that 14th French Open as well as his 22nd overall Grand Slam major tournament. And then there's some football to get to, believe it or not. Aaron Donald possibly retiring and a couple of sad untimely deaths that we'll get into regarding a current player and a former player that just came through last night. So all that presented to you guys from yours truly here in a matter of seconds. So we'll start off with what's going to take place on the West Coast, in San Francisco, the Bay Area, as Game 1 of the NBA Finals begins this evening. And as I said just a couple of minutes ago, the home stretch here where we have a conference final in the NHL as a prelude to the Stanley Cup final, which will be in a couple weeks. And then now, with both conference finals done in our rearview mirror, we could solely focus and concentrate on what's going to happen here, not only tonight, but these first couple of games as they'll be played at the Chase Center in San Francisco. And we know the journey for both of these teams, how they've gotten here. And I know a lot of the talk heading into this game one tonight is the Warriors pretty much having a very... I'm not going to say a cakewalk as far as a red carpet to the NBA Finals, but it wasn't as grueling. It wasn't as physical. They weren't really battle-tested, even though quite a few players on this team certainly are, considering that run from 2015 to 2019. And then when you look at the Celtics on the flip side, yes, that road definitely had a lot of bumps, a lot of bruises, a lot of Games they had to win on the road in key spots, whether it was a game six in Milwaukee when they were down three games to two, or even having to come back to Miami for a game seven after being up 3-2, losing a game six at home. So we know that the Celtics have been challenged. They've played a lot more physical. They played a tougher road to get here. And I understand that could be one of the key storylines as we discuss this NBA final. But when we look at it from a historical standpoint, From the Bay Area to Boston Harbor, how this is the first meeting between the Warrior franchise at the time they were the San Francisco Warriors since 1964 where the Celtics won that NBA final four games to one. That decade, as we all know, Russell over Chamberlain, which was a theme as he got the best of him for most of that decade, 1967 being the only year that Chamberlain got over the hump when it came to playing against Bill Russell. And here we are now, fast forward. What is it, do the math, 58 years later to where these two teams, and which I believe is the matchup that I'm sure ESPN, ABC was dying to have. Miami wouldn't have had that same sex appeal. It wouldn't have been a scenario where you could match up Golden State's firepower with Miami. Yes, you have Jimmy Butler, and especially what he did in those last two games in the conference final. But on a whole, they don't really have the star power to match up against the Golden State Warriors, and the Celtics actually can. Headlined by, of course, Jason Tatum, as him being the one, and then the 1A being Jalen Brown. You want to throw in Marcus Smart being a heart and soul, blood and guts type of guy. And then, of course, you have the Wiley veteran, Al Horford, who had played in 141 playoff games before reaching his first NBA final, which is an NBA record, a record that I'm sure he's happy that he doesn't have to worry about 
for the rest of his career, however long that's going to be, considering he is 35 years of age and has been playing, what, 16 years in the league. But even with all that being said, and with the recent pedigree of this Warrior team, we all know, don't have to go through the scenario. I did mention that run from 2015 to 2019. We know who the cast of characters played on those teams and what they won and who was on the team. And this one is a big one if your name is Steph Curry. And the reason why I bring him up is because he's a guy that we all know, greatest shooter ever, changed the game, pretty much changed the way the game is being played today. As we all know, it's behind the arc. Forget about back to the basket. Forget about the big men. Forget about even a mid-range game, depending on who you are. It's all about making threes. And we get it that not everybody can be Steph Curry. We can't make that half-court shot. We can't make the stretch where he could go off and shoot four or five three-pointers in a quarter. And he is going to be the big storyline here because as we know the Warriors, and even with that first championship under his belt back in 2015 to where Andre Iguodala was your finals MVP, and it's not to say that he has to have an NBA Finals MVP on his resume, but it would certainly be the cherry on top, considering since that time, yes, he's made it to four straight finals after that, winning two of them, but the other two that he won, the MVP went to Kevin Durant. The other two, he has that stain in a Game 7 where he lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers, as we all know, the 73-9 and team. And then on top of that, the year where... Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson both got hurt back-to-back games five and six, and they lost to the Toronto Raptors. So now this is his time to really not only just shine, because we know he's been able to do that throughout his career, but to take his game to a level where we have seen in the NBA Finals, but not to the point where we know that he has been by far the best player on the court. He's had his moments, he's had flashes, but as I just evidenced, he hasn't been the guy to carry his team to that pantheon of NBA greats to be the best player on the floor and to not only hold the championship trophy at the end, but also that Bill Russell finals trophy as being the MVP of the series. And a lot of people are going to even look at Curry as this being a legacy-defining game. Yes, he did win the one without Durant, but considering since then... He hasn't been able to win one on his own to really stamp and validate his career. And it's similar in this regard to Kobe Bryant. And once again, I know Curry did get that first one. Understood before Kevin Durant got there. But remember, when the Lakers of the early 2000s was all about Shaq and Kobe, and Shaq being the dominant player that he was, everybody knew that in order for Kobe, as great as he was, even on those Lakers teams in 2000 through 2002. But once Shaq went to Miami and then bounced around the league after that, it was up to Kobe to really cement his legacy to get that championship without the big fella. And as we know, he got it in back-to-back years in 2009 and 2010. And this is where Curry, not knowing how many other opportunities he's going to get, And knowing that he has this right in front of him, you know he's going to be salivating at the point where he's going to do whatever it takes, not only just to be that finals MVP, because I'm sure that doesn't matter, but if he has his stamp on this series with one or two significant games or even significant spots to where they end up victorious and win the championship, then he knows he could 
exhale and breathe that sigh of relief knowing that I did do this without Kevin Durant and he could just doubt all the naysayers at that point. So to me, that's the one storyline I'm going to look at when it comes to not only just Golden State, but the series on a whole. As far as the other players, we know about Golden State's mix, as we talked about here on Monday, with the veteran leadership by Steph, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and then with the young cast of characters, when your name is Jordan Poole, Jonathan Kaminga, even Andrew Wiggins. And that's going to be another storyline there as I circle his name because when you saw what he did to Luka Doncic in the previous series against the Dallas Mavericks, you would think that Wiggins is going to be front and center the guy that's going to try to slow down or even stop Jason Tatum. And I'm sure he's going to switch back and forth depending on who's going to be hot. I would think it's going to be between he and Tatum or even Jalen Brown for that matter. But that's going to be one that we're going to have to underline because if he's going to be able to neutralize the Celtics' best player, anything close to what he did to Luka Doncic in the conference final, then this could be a short series for a Celtic team because we all know the offense for the Celtics is going to be reliant on those two guys. So Wiggins is going to be a big part. I'm sure you're going to see a little Klay Thompson. I'm sure you're going to see even a little Draymond Green, for that matter, depending on how hot they get or if they go off on one of those big flurries. I'm sure you're going to see bodies mixed all around the Warrior lineup to try to stop and slow down either Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, but you would think the big assignment is going to fall heavily on Andrew Wiggins, so that's another storyline that we have to pay attention to here. And on the Celtics side, I get it that this could be a thing, especially for the dynamic duo as two young guys, 24 and 25, getting there for the first time. We know they have their mix too with Marcus Smart and Al Horford, the two veterans there. But I think a big factor here, and not that this is a juicy storyline to say the least, but I think as far as an X-Factor goes, and I hate X-Factors, I don't like to really dissect series or games. And yes, they are important. And I understand that they have to be looked at and to a certain extent paid attention to, but sometimes X-Factors can be forgotten because we're just so focused on the key players in the series, the guys that we know that are going to deliver or we feel that will deliver or can deliver that we don't look at the defensive presence of this player or the intangible of that player. And yes, we could look at that throughout both of these teams. But I think for the Celtics, and it's going to be imperative, not to say that if this player doesn't contribute that they're not going to win a title, but I think that if he is healthy and plays effectively the way he has shown in bits and pieces throughout this postseason, but also be consistent, Robert Williams is going to be a key component here. Because his defense, especially when you get inside the paint, if Curry is trying to attack the basket at times, or if anybody's going to slash and cut where you have that rim protector, that presence there in the middle that is going to alter a shot or is going to make a player think twice about driving down the lane knowing that Williams is going to be there. And yes, you could say the same even for Al Horford, but because Williams is younger, because he's able to not only play the paint but also the perimeter, that's a guy that if he's going to be healthy, as healthy as he can be at this juncture of the season, knowing that he's had to take games off, that he's had to take some time off, 
He has not been 100% ever since he had the meniscus surgery. But he is a guy that a lot of Celtic fans, and I'm sure NBA fans are going to look at, that if he's going to be a guy that is going to remain on the floor and play to his ability, and not only just on the defensive end, but to get the offensive rebound, the putbacks, do some of that dirty work, that's going to go long and far as to how successful the Celtics could be as opposed to just being that two-man band that's expected to score anywhere between 45, 50, maybe even 60 points in a game to where you're going to have to have the rest of the guys pick it up, whether it's Grant Williams, obviously Marcus Smart. You want to chip in maybe a Peyton Pritchard if he's going to come in off the bench. But Robert Williams, whatever he's going to contribute on both sides of the floor are going to be key. And as I said, X-Factors, they could go out the window quick, fast, in a hurry. Because if Williams is going to be hurt or hobbled or not going to have any significant time in the series, then, like I said, that X-Factor goes out the window. And as we know, this is one of those scenarios where you have the unstoppable force versus the unmovable object. And what I mean by that is Golden State at home is not lost. And the Celtics are 7-2 and two on the road. And we know that something's got to give here. You would think that the Warriors are overdue to lose a game here in their building, which I think you will see. And then also you have to remember that the Celtics are perfect after a loss. So even if the Celtics go into tonight's game and they lose, they've been able to be resilient and bounce back in a big way with a victory. That will have to see if if it shakes down that way. But I think for the Celtics to win this series... Obviously, they must win one because the Warriors do have the home court. But I think in order for them to win this championship, they're going to have to win two at Chase Center. Which two? Who knows? You'd want to try to get them early, not necessarily from a standpoint of getting the first two. Early, what I mean is at least get game one. So you, even though you want to go for a 2-0 series advantage, but if you win game one, not to say that you can put your feet up for game two, but you do have house money. You don't have to worry about if you're down 0-1, oh geez, we know we have to get this even though we go back home, even if we go down 0-2. But we all know you do not want to do that and have a scenario where Golden State could win a game on the road to where you're going back to San Francisco in all likelihood down three games to one. So whichever game that is, whether it's game one or two, and of course you'd rather win game five than win game seven, which is what the Celtics had to do in the previous series to where they won Game 5 in Miami, then they lost Game 6 and they had to go back there to win Game 7. This is going to be different because they're not taking a three-hour flight south where it's on the same coast, it's a straight shot down. No, they're going to have to go across three time zones both ways if they have to win a Game 5 and also a Game 7 if it happens to break in that fashion. As I mentioned earlier, we know about the roads that both teams have gotten here. Not easy for the Celtics, a little bit easier for the Warriors. Does that bode well more so for the Celtics than it does the Warriors? Because A, they play with a physicality and an intensity that the Warriors have not seen. And therefore, maybe the Warriors, and I'm sure they've watched plenty of film and they know the type of team the Celtics are. Granted, they only see them twice a year. And for the record, they did split during the regular season. And if you recall, the second game, which was in March, where the Celtics won going away and Marcus Smart fell on the ankle of Stephen Curry, 
where he was out for pretty much the remainder of the regular season. So if you want to have that little tidbit to throw in there as far as this series goes, you can. Thinking back, it was unintentional. Smart was going for the ball. We all know what type of player he is. It wasn't dirty. There wasn't any malice towards trying to hurt or even knock out Stephen Curry out of the game. So to me, that's neither here nor there. But the Celtics are going to bring a certain dynamic that the Warriors have not seen. And we know that the Warriors play very good defense as they were both one and two, Celtics and Warriors, in the regular season when it comes to the defensive metrics. And although they play different styles, but if they're a top-notch defense just as much as the Celtics are, you got to wonder which team is really going to show up to either slow down or even stop some of their players. And we know that the Warriors, for the most part, they're going to live and die by the three. And it's going to be led by you-know-who, number 30. And with the Celtics, they've also had their moments where they're going to play hero ball and live and die by the three too. It's just a matter of who's going to be able to get that key stop, get that key block, the key turnover, steal, strip, etc. when we dissect these games on a micro level. So a lot of interesting storylines here as we lead up to this game. And let's just cut right to it. We know that the Celtics have been battle-tested. We know they bring that intensity. And obviously the physicality that the Warriors have not seen. But on the flip side, the Celtics have not seen this type of threat on the offensive side than they have throughout the whole playoffs. Yes, you can look at the first series, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, but that team was so dysfunctional with everything that had gone down during the regular season that by the time they got to the playoffs... They did win that game one on the last second layup and the Nets did have a lead game two in Boston. But they were able to prevail and they were able to dispose of the Nets in four games. And with the Bucks not having Chris Middleton and other than Jimmy Butler and with Tyler Hero out, the Heat did not have a full complement of an offensive attack or a threat that they had to worry about. Here they're going to have to worry about three players at the very least. So that's another interesting dynamic when we look at this series. The Celtic defense going up against that Warrior offense. And how I look at it is, I'm not going to say it's the Celtics' time. People could say that this is the Warriors' time. Knowing that the window is still open, that these players are still in the middle of their prime with the combination of the youth that's on their team, as I highlighted earlier. And the Celtics have the... Young, budding stars, complemented by their two grizzled veterans. I can see the Celtics getting out of the gate a little slow. The extra couple days off, I'm sure, is going to help. Warriors have had a week off since today. That's when they beat the Mavericks this time a week ago. But I can see the Celtics gaining a split, a split in Boston, And dare I say, the road warrior mentality, winning a game five in San Francisco, and then coming back home, knowing that in the previous series, they learned their lesson as they lost a game six at home, knowing that they definitely do not want to get on a plane and travel 3,000 miles across the coast to play in a game seven, knowing that they're going to have to do that in back-to-back series, which will be next to impossible. 
Celtics in six. Banner 18, race to the rafters sometime in mid-October. And your MVP of the series, I'm sure it's got to be Jason Tatum, considering he won the MVP of the Eastern Conference Finals. So I'm going to say he's the guy that's going to lead them, not only to a Finals victory, but also the Bill Russell Trophy at that. All right, now I'll turn our attention to the ice as I lace up my skates and we'll go through it. Both teams, or I should say both series, are now in the conference finals. And we had a game one a couple of nights ago in Colorado, which I'll get to, but I'll start off with the Rangers here only because they just played as early as last night. Number one, number two, they did have to play a game seven in Carolina, which I talked about there on Monday's pod. And even though I thought the better matchup that we would like to see as fans were to be Tampa and the Rangers as opposed to Tampa and Carolina. Now, I know I did pick Carolina to win. I just felt that it was chalk throughout the first 13 games to where they won all their home games and lost all their road games. But guess what? Carolina was living on the edge a bit too much and not winning on the road cost them at the worst possible time because I'm sure they banked on maybe just from a psychological perspective, to know that they lost the game six at MSG and knowing that they were going to come home and say, don't worry, we got this. We've been able to be undefeated at home up until this point. We'll find a way, we'll eke through, and we'll face our division rival nemesis in a one Tampa Bay Lightning. As it was, forget about it. The Rangers were dominant in that game seven. They jumped out to a 2 nothing lead. Then it was 3-0 before Auntie Ranta had to leave the game because of a an upper body injury. And then the Rangers just piled it on after that. They were able to go up 4-0. I know Carolina tried to get back in the game, but before it was all said and done, the Rangers then skated out of Carolina with a 6-2 victory. And pretty much when you boil down the series, Carolina had no offensive firepower. They weren't able to do anything on the power play. As evidence, they only had two power play goals in the series where the Rangers, I believe, had seven. And the Rangers were able to win another Game 7, this time on the road. Of course, they won Game 7 at home against the Pittsburgh Penguins in overtime in the first series. And now, all the momentum, all of the buildup leading into the conference final, a conference final that I predicted when you think about it, but... I did say it was going to be a Tampa-New York conference final, but I got it half right because it was the Islanders that were supposed to be in the spot, not the Rangers. And then last night, just a minute and 11 in, you had Chris Kreider score that goal in the slot on that two-on-one, and they were off and running. Granted that Steven Stamkos had a pretty goal there later on in the first period. It was 2-2 before the floodgates opened to where the Rangers then just piled on two goals by Philip Heedle. Artemi Panarin with a goal 30 seconds into the third. Before you know it, another 6-2 victory. You got a little frustration there at the end of the third period with Pat Maroon and Ryan Reeves and everybody getting into each other's faces. Certainly not a thing of many years playoff history past where if that was 35, 40 years ago, they'd probably still be on the ice brawling and separating players, etc., But Tampa, you want to say it was rust, the nine-day layoff, not being in sync, whatever you want to call, the Rangers were flying in their building. And that's one thing, too. It's very rare 
for a team that was able to sweep a team in the prior series to then have to go on the road because usually that team is the home team after a situation like that. But since they had to wait nine days down in Tampa to then fly up to New York and then play a hot Ranger team to where, all right, the game was 2-2, but then they were able to turn it on and did not look back. Andre Vasilevsky, listen, a lot of those goals weren't his fault. The Rangers, I'm sure they probably watched a lot of tape. When you think about it, a lot of those goals were one-timer type goals. Both Philip Hedel goals were one-timers where Vasilevsky had no shot in saving. The first goal by Kreider, those are two-on-one, and Kreider just had a quick of a snapshot there to get the goal scoring open in the series. And the Rangers, they are hot as a pistol right now. They're a team that I said would match up and fare well. I posted last night, I think the Lightning would win in six games, and I'm not rooting for the Lightning. I'm not rooting for the Rangers either. This is one series as an Islander fan. You don't want to see the Rangers anywhere near the Cup. But remember this, people. The Lightning got blasted in Game 1 against the Toronto Maple Leafs in the opening series. And I know you could say they're the Maple Leafs, they're Snake Pit, they're Cursed, etc. And they shut them out. Toronto won 5 nothing in that game one. So the Ranger fan could be pumped up and giddy, the whole nine, and rightfully so. But just think back two series ago to where they were blown out and people thought that, oh boy, this could be the beginning of the end for the Lightning as far as defending their back-to-back Stanley Cup championships. So we'll see how they respond there Friday. But one key loss is a little bit forgotten considering that they did win against Toronto and that they swept the Panthers But Braden Point could be their MVP of this team. We saw what he's done the last couple of postseasons. We saw him score in nine straight playoff games last year, which I believe tied a record. And his presence is huge here. Because even though you still have a lot of good offensive players there on the Lightning, whether you're Steven Stamkos, Nikita Kucherov, there are plenty of guys on that team that can score. But Point, he is a blur on the ice He also is a guy that you have to pay attention to, especially if you're the opposing team. He's a guy that, right, he's not going to be confused with a Mike Bossy or a Guy Lafleur or that big-time scorer, although he has scored big-time goals in his postseason career. And you definitely got to respect and give him that. But when we're looking at goal scorers in this day and age, he's not your Alex Ovechkin, he's not your Nathan McKinnon, he's not that type of player. But... We know he's an excellent skater. We know that he rises to the occasions in these moments, especially in the postseason, and he's going to be sorely missed here. So they're going to have to do it without him, and they've done it without him pretty much for this postseason, or at least in the last series and a half. So that's one thing that we're going to have to pay attention to, even though I think the Lightning will be fine if they were able to steal a game tomorrow night at the Garden. They could still win this series, and I think even if they lose... Tomorrow, they're still going back home. They can still win those games in Tampa and bring it back to New York and maybe be at 2-2 if it happens to break that way. But the Lightning, let's see how they respond here. They are champions for a reason. And it'll be intriguing to see how they follow up this 6-2 loss. And I'm sure you're going to see a big-time effort tomorrow, not only from the team itself, but from their goaltender. 
And then in the Western Conference Final, where I talked about firepower throughout on Monday, and you saw that there on Tuesday night. And if the final score doesn't indicate that, mind you, the Oilers had that first game in the conference semifinal against the Flames where it was 9-6. Here it was 8-6, and not to say that every game is going to be like that, but you've got a bit of an idea as to what to expect here as these teams battle it out over, you would think, at least the next four or five games. We hope that it at least goes six. And give it up to the Oilers. They were down 7-3. They made it the game there late or halfway through the third period as they came storming back. They cut the deficit to one on a goal by Ryan Nugent Hopkins. And even then, at 7-6, I thought that they were going to come back and tie the game. They got a late goal there, an empty netter by Gabriel Landeskog. So they killed the Oilers' comeback at that point. You also have to worry about the goaltending. As Mike Smith, he was pulled again at 6-3. And we know Mike Smith can have these games where, not to say he could show flashes of dominance, but Mike Smith is a guy that when you expect him to go bad, he actually plays well. And when you think that he's going to play well, he goes bad. But that's what you're going to get with a guy who's in his 40s. And although he's been able to take it to this point, but he's going to have to make a key save at some point if they expect to get to the next round. And then the Avalanche, they lose Darcy Kemper to an upper body injury. Who knows what his status is going to be for tonight's game two. Replaced by Pavel Frankuz. Now, Frankuz is a capable backup. How he's going to perform here if he does start the game. When you don't have your starter, it's as simple as that. He's going to have to carry the mail for as long and as much as he can here. If Kemper is not going to be back at any time or at any point in the series, you would think. Not knowing the severity of it, maybe he will be back. But again, the teams and the NHL, they keep these injuries as if it's top secret. As if these teams had the nuclear codes to the country. But game two tonight should be a long series. We talked about the matchup between the centers, Nathan McKinnon and Connor McDavid. Both of them had very good games. In game one, we would expect nothing less, not only tonight, but also moving forward in the series. And we'll see how that unfolds. And when we look at just on a whole, obviously I didn't talk about this on Monday because we still had to worry about a game seven. But if you're the NHL, I would think you'd want to have the Rangers there more than Tampa. And I understand that they're going for a three-peat And Tampa is part of the sports fans' consciousness, knowing what they've done here over the last two years. But anytime you have an original six team, and I've said this before, and I'll say it one last time, when you have, especially a Ranger team, yes, if they were the Boston Bruins or the Chicago Blackhawks, obviously if they were the Montreal Canadiens or even, dare I say, the Toronto Maple Leafs, yes, you could throw in the Red Wings too. But because they're the Rangers... And we know what they mean to the sport and even to the casual sports fan. Having them there, I would think, is going to bring eyeballs to the sets. And we understand that Colorado has a history there, although it's been a couple of decades that they've been to cup finals and won. And they have star power. They have the firepower, as I mentioned. But I think Edmonton, and granted, 
that when we think of the Edmonton Oilers, of course, you're going to think about the heyday of the 80s into 1990 when they won five Stanley Cups in seven years. But we all know that's Gretzky, that's Messier, that's Curry, that's Grant Fuhrer, Paul Coffey, go on down the list. And with Connor McDavid being the MVP and arguably, maybe inarguably to some factions of the hockey world, the best player on the planet, an Edmonton Rangers Stanley Cup final would be, I'm sure, the NHL would just die for. If it's Edmonton and Tampa, I'm sure you still have the star player going up against the juggernaut that has won two Stanley Cups. But again, it's not going to have the same pizzazz. It's not going to have the same panache, I would think. And I'm talking about the casual sports fan. Because that's what you're trying to get here. If you're a hockey fan, and especially a diehard hockey fan, it could be Tampa and Colorado, and they're going to watch. But the NHL wants to get the casual fan there. And even if it's Tampa Edmonton or Tampa Colorado, yeah, they'll still watch that. But if it's Edmonton and the Rangers... And okay, second will be Edmonton and Tampa. Now you're talking. But Edmonton Rangers, that's marquee. Madison Square Garden. The Edmonton Oilers. You could bring in all of their history into the mix. It's kind of as if the Islanders. And not to say that the Islanders are going to capture the fascination of America, but we know about those four Stanley Cubs. Granted, it was 100 years ago. But with all the Hall of Famers and with all the hardware and the 19 straight playoff series, that you could bring to the American sports fans' consciousness. Just like you could bring that with Edmonton. We're early in these series, one game apiece, lots of hockey to be played. We'll see how it all fares in the days and next couple of weeks to come. So as I take off my skates and put on my cleats to get into some baseball, and today, with it being June 2nd, it is Lou Gehrig Day. This is the day that he was born, off the top of my head, I believe in 19, was it 1902? Because I believe he died at the age of 39. I should know that off the top of my head. I mean, that should be foregone conclusion, knowing this stuff. But to signify ALS, of course, the Lou Gehrig's disease, which he died from, The famed speech there in 1939. Today I consider myself the luckiest guy on the face of the earth, etc. So to bring that awareness to the forefront and what Lou Gehrig meant to the sport, we all know when you look at the history of the sport and who are the top players that have graced the baseball field, obviously he's one of them. Possibly top seven, easily top ten. So on this day we recognize him and the illness that is ALS. Now, as we talk about what's going on today on the Diamond, and the one thing of note that we'll look at here is the Mets winners of six in a row as they beat up on the Phillies over the weekend and then beat up on the hapless Washington Nationals, which you beat the teams that are in front of you. That's all there is to it. But now, for the first time this year, the Mets are going into the deep end of the pool. And this is going to be an interesting test because we know that Max Scherzer, Jacob DeGrom, they're not walking through that door anytime soon. They're going on the West Coast and actually Southern California over the next 11 days to where they visit Chavez Ravine for four starting tonight. A Dodger team that's beaten up on the Mets here over the last couple of years. 
From there, they go to San Diego, down the coast, and then after that, with a day off sandwiched in between, next Thursday, they'll drive back up the coast to play in Anaheim against the Angels. Before coming home to play the Milwaukee Brewers, which in all likelihood they'll be in first place in the NL Central. So they start off in LA with a possible dare I even discuss on June 2nd in NLCS preview. Way too early to determine that, of course. But for four games, you're going to see them go at it. Then they played a second place team in the NL West and the San Diego Padres, and they played pretty well here. And this is without their superstar shortstop and a one Fernando Tatis Jr. And then, although they've been struggling as of late, but they'll go up against an Angel team with Mike Trout and what they've been able to do this early portion of the baseball season. So not an easy stretch. And then, of course, you have the pitching of the Milwaukee Brewers when they come back home after their sojourn to Southern California. We shall see how this is going to shake down. And granted, they have a 10-game lead in the division. And they certainly could look at their season at 35-17, and 17, which, when you think about it, after 50 games in 1986, the last year they won the World Series, they were 35-15. and 15. So when you take a couple of these wins away against the Nationals, they were 33-17, and 17, so they're only two games behind that pace. And by any means, I'm not trying to compare this team to the 86 team, no way. But if you want to look at it as a parameter, that's something that, as a Met fan, you should say to yourself, wow, they're actually two games behind the pace of a championship team that is forever loved and endearing to the Met fan that we can hang our hat on. What does it mean in the grand scheme of things? Nothing, but at least for 50 games we could, as I said, look back and say, all right, that's a pretty good achievement. Doesn't win you anything, but you get my drift. So no more Phillies, no more Nats, no more Rockies on the schedule. So for them to embark on this trip, which is going to be a very important trip, and I'm not going to say it's going to be very telling, but if the Mets come out of this, let's just say, and I'm just talking about the West Coast, forget about the three games against the Brewers. If they come home six and four, you jump for joy. Split against the Dodgers, and if you take two out of three against the Padres and the same against the Angels, I mean, you'd sign for that in blood. As long as you win these series, absolutely. So that's one thing we're going to have to keep an eye on here over the course of this next week and a half to see how the Mets do against the better teams, not only in the National League, but also against a pretty good team as they will play an interleague series for the first time on the road this year. Other news, the Nats and Juan Soto. I know that's been a lot of buzz, a lot of talk, as he's still a year and a half away from free agency. But their GM came out and said that we are not trading Juan Soto. We're going to build around him. We're going to do whatever it takes. Yada, yada, yada. Is that lip service to the fans? Who knows? But when he's come out to say that he's spoken to his representative, Scott Boris, several times that they not only want to rebuild around him, but also re-sign him? Well, I guess they're going to have to pay a Patrick Mahomes-esque type of contract where it's going to be $450 million and even north of that because 
how are they going to be able to look at their fans dead in the eye after his statement that they're going to rebuild and do whatever it takes and then let's say at this time next year with many overtures about how Soto's going to go elsewhere how Boris, you know he's going to be his mouthpiece to say we're going to test the free agent waters yada 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 and Soto's having an awful year he's batting 230 I think he's in the 220s after the series against the Mets so it's not as if he's having this killer year because he's the only guy in the lineup that any of these teams are going to fear. So they're going to pitch around them. Obviously, there's no Bryce Harper or Anthony Rendon's or Ryan Zimmerman's. Those guys are long gone. So Soto is your only offensive option. So, of course, they're going to pitch around them. It's going to be interesting to see how this develops because... There may be a team out there that's going to probably throw everything in the kitchen sink just to bring a guy like Soto on their, onto their ball club. And again, it's still a year and a half to go before he becomes a free agent, but this is something that you're going to have to, maybe not necessarily now, but once we get past the season, into the offseason, and there's going to be buzz abound, not only on his production and how he performs the rest of the year, but also whether or not that the Nationals are going to pony up to give him that big-time 13-, 15-year deal, which you would think that's going to start off easily at $400 million. And whether the Nats are going to be able to back up the Brinks truck to put their money where their mouths are. So that's one we'll have to pay attention to. And then the other thing is Josh Donaldson, as he came out and said that he was hurt that the Yankees didn't support him publicly in light of the whole Tim Anderson deal. You heard... Aaron Judge's quotes where he said that, yeah, he probably shouldn't have gone there. And who knows if they had a one-on-one in the locker room or they spoke about it amongst certain players. If Donaldson brought it up to Judge to say, hey, man, that was uncool or whatever. Who knows? But, hey, if Donaldson is hurt by it, so be it. I don't know the type of relationship he has in the locker room with those guys. And you know they're going to keep it in-house. That's not going to be relinquished anytime soon. But Donaldson, hey, he has to own up to it. Was it right for Judge to go to the press to talk about it and not talk to Donaldson? Uh, why does he owe Donaldson any time or to say, hey, you shouldn't have done that? I don't know. I'm not there. I can't gauge whether or not they are cool with one another. I'm sure professionally they are, but personally maybe that's a whole other story. But for Donaldson, who knows if that's going to be, I'm not going to say a breaking point, But maybe that's one thing that you'll have to keep an eye on when it comes to the chemistry and the continuity of this team. And that's not to say that Donaldson's going to throw a Molotov cocktail into the mix as far as him having his own clique or sector of the room where it's he and a couple other guys versus everybody else. Listen, that's high school stuff. Donaldson's a pro. He's been around the block. He should know better. And he did say that everywhere he went other than Oakland that he was the consummate professional, he was a good teammate, etc. And you would think he's going to follow suit here as he's trying to attain big things where the Yankees obviously are tops in the American League East. So we'll see how that goes. Now on to the tennis as the French Open gets deep and the weekend will be telling to see who's going to become champion. On the women's side, Coco Goff is the story here because she is pretty much the last woman standing, especially when it comes to 
an American. She will face Martina Trevisan. I'm sure she's probably performing as we talk about this or as I speak. And if Goff can make it to a final, this will be a tremendous step. But in that discussion, she'll probably end up going against the number one player in the world, and that would be Iga Swiatek. Swiatek, who has won, I believe, 35 or 36 consecutive matches, she is going to be a tough out no matter what. And you would think that even with Goff and what she's done to this point, certainly one that you could recognize and maybe that she'll be a force somewhere down the road. She is 18. She's still very young. But I would also think that this is an opportunity, not only in the semifinal, because the semifinal is going to take place first, I believe sometime later this morning. But if she does happen to prevail and move on to the final, she really has a chance to, I'm not going to say take tennis by storm, but really put an imprint not only just for her, first and foremost, but for the sport on a whole. Because the sport needs to have a player that's going to not only just be from this country, but also be that next star. We talked about it on the men's side with Carlos Alcaraz, and I'll get to that in a minute. And he's from Spain, so of course the American is not going to correlate with someone that's from overseas unless you're just a dynamo tennis fan where you just love the sport from top to bottom. But here for Goff to really get herself among the mainstream and to be that household name here in this country in a sport that not a lot of fans really care about, she could really do some damage here with a victory, not only in a semifinal, but also winning a final, especially against the number one player in the world in Iga Swiatek. So, Something that we'll keep an eye on here over the course of the next couple of days. And hopefully she does advance. I would love to see her get to a final. And how that unfolds from there will be a witness to that. On the men's side, we had the epic match between Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. When Nadal won in four sets, he got up on the first set quickly. As well as the second set, he was up three love before Djokovic came storming back. And then in the fourth set where Djokovic was up 5-2 and you thought that Djokovic was going to push this to a fifth set, it was already going to be a four-hour match, probably pushing five. But then here comes Rafa storming back to the point where he was able to overcome and win that fourth set 7-6-4 as he inches closer to another French Open title, which would be number 14 and 22nd major overall, and he'll face Alexander Zverev tomorrow, who bested Carlos Alcaraz, and a lot of people thought that they were hoping to see the old guard versus the young guard, especially when it comes to Spaniards, where you'll have Nadal go up against Alcaraz, and Alcaraz beat him in the Madrid Open just a couple of weeks ago, so it would have been fascinating to have both of those players perform against one another in a semifinal, but that's not to be had. And when we look at the other side of the draw, with Daniel Medvedev out, With Stefano Tsitsipas out, there's a clear path for Nadal to get his 14th French Open here. Because with those guys out, and that's not to diminish what Marin Silic has done, or even Holger Rune, but those are going to be one of the two guys that they may face there in a men's final. But he does have to get over the Zverev hurdle before he even gets to that point. But again, he's already beaten Djokovic. 
He doesn't have to worry about Alcaraz. He certainly doesn't have to worry about Medvedev or Tsitsipas in his path. So now you would think that Nadal is going to be a heavy favorite to win another French Open and to extend his lead all time for Grand Slams at 22. So tennis is going to have a very interesting weekend and hopefully it shapes up that way when it comes to both the men's and women's side. And then lastly, just a couple of NFL notes. One, I'll start off with Aaron Donald. I know he was on the I Am Athlete podcast with Brandon Marshall, LaShawn McCoy, Pac-Man Jones, etc. How if he doesn't get the next big contract, and we know that he does have a contract through 2023, the end of 2023, I believe, but no guaranteed money, so he's just going to make whatever his salary is for those two years. And at the age of 31, with all the accolades and, of course, the brass ring that he got this past February, the last step would be to get that final monumental contract with all the guaranteed money so he could go off into the sunset as an all-time great Ram and get his number retired and obviously his busting Canton. But he did say that he'd be at peace if he doesn't get that contract and therefore go off into retirement. Now with the Rams, we know that they are beyond capped out. Remember, they gave Jalen Ramsey all that money. They gave just this offseason the extension, $160 million to Matthew Stafford, $60 million to Bobby Wagner. There's also other players that they signed during the offseason to some mega contracts. But Donald... If he feels that he's at peace and he doesn't have to worry about playing, I think he's going to play this year. You would think he's going to want to go back, run it back to try to go back-to-back and make it to a Super Bowl and win again. But I would think that past this year, if the Rams do not come forth with a contract, and I would think that there's going to be talks behind the scenes. There's no way, shape, or form that you would want to let your franchise defensive player just go off to another team or become a free agent. Again, he's on the contract. So it's not as if he's going into a walk year. I don't know if he's going to have that player empowerment NBA style where he's going to force or even demand a trade. Doesn't seem like he's going to come from that perspective. But this thing with Donald, at 31, if he does happen to play this year or if he says the hell with it, I'm not going to play this year, or who knows? It's all up in the air. It's a big, giant question mark, but would I be surprised? Absolutely not. He's done anything that you could possibly imagine on a football field between Defensive Players of the Year, between whatever Pro Bowls, first-team All-Pros, now winning a Super Bowl. What more does he have to prove? You had a couple of untimely deaths this past week, one being Jeff Gladney, who had signed with Arizona, and he had some off-the-field issues as he was a number one pick of the Vikings, but was released and unfortunately died in a car accident a few days ago. He was a cornerback, came from TCU. I know his former teammate there at Texas Christian, Jalen Rager, tweeted about it. It was just devastated. was one of his guys when they played in college and just sad and terrible news coming out of the Arizona Cardinal camp. So thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the Gladney family, as well as Marion Barber III, who was found dead in his apartment outside of Texas, and no details of his death. 
there have been reports about some mental issues that he's had over the years. We all know the type of running back that he was. When you have a nickname, Marion the Barbarian, it's not because you're a scat back running back or you're a guy that's Barry Sanders that it's going to be pretty much hit the hole and you're going to juke 11 guys on the field. He was a battering ram, to say the least, and who knows if that caught up to him in his post-career. Sadly, dying at the age of 38, shocking news coming out last night. Again, thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to his family. I'm sure his father has to be devastated. Marion Barber, who played for the Jets, was a running back going back. Just a terrible story there as Marion Barber leaves us way too soon, again at the age of 38. And then the Buccaneers, real quick, they signed Akeem Nix. Let's see if he can return to his form of a few years back. He had some nagging injuries last year, did not perform well for the Chicago Bears. And with Ndamukong Su, in all likelihood not to be re-signed, Hicks is going to replace him. So if he has any type of flashes of what we saw there in Chicago, that's going to be a big pickup for the Buccaneers as they try to go back to a Super Bowl with their veteran-laden team, of course, led by Tom Brady. That'll do it, my good people. I'm glad you stuck around. I'm glad that you are here. Not only once, but now twice a week as I've been doing this consistently going back to early April. Continuing to keep you guys and gals apprised on my takes, my analysis of what goes on in the world of sports. And you know I do not take your participation lightly or for granted for that matter. So I do thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving your boy a chance and an opportunity to share Like I said, my thoughts, opinions, analysis on anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. And if you haven't done so, if you could please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Let's increase the visibility of this podcast. If you throw me a few stars, write a review. Again, I appreciate you doing so. If you have a question, comment, criticism, praise, a suggestion, you could please hit me up on any of my social media accounts. That being TikTok, the J Reels Podcast, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels one just a number. Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up ASAP. And then lastly, you'll also see this on the website at jreels.com. Anytime you go through the podcast that I put up, my Patreon page, if you want to support this endeavor, P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy, Dot com slash the J Reels podcast. Anything you want to put forth to that goes 100% to this endeavor. The production, upkeep of the website, equipment, anything and everything to make this experience as crystal clear through your earbuds or your speakers because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do. This is what I love to talk about, people. If you can't tell now, I don't know. I guess you're going to have to come back on Monday as I break down the first couple of games of the NBA Finals, more of the Stanley Cup playoffs, the baseball, the French Open, etc., It's in the blood, people. It's in the DNA. This is what I love to talk about. Thoughts, opinions, critiques, praise, analysis on anything and everything that goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>